IO9 presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 51 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, I'm John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor and now publisher of Lightspeed Magazine, and I'm also the editor of several anthologies. I have several coming out next year, including Under the Moons of Mars, which features stories inspired by the Barsoom saga by Edgar Rice Burroughs, Armored, which is about powered armored soldiers in Mecca, and The Mad Scientist's Guide to World Domination, which is about mad scientists and evil geniuses trying to take over the world. The most recent book of mine to come out was Lightspeed Year One, which collects all of the fiction published in the first year of Lightspeed. And I'm David Barr Kirtley. I'm the author of many short stories, including The Trial of Thomas Jefferson, about a court that uses time travel to put historical figures on trial. The story was originally published in Cicada magazine, and also appeared as episode 13 of the Journey Into podcast. And as you may have heard, this is going to be our last episode on io9. While we've gotten a tremendous response from almost everyone that's listened, a large number of visitors to the site just aren't into podcasts, so io9 has chosen to focus more on text and video. We'd like to thank io9 for hosting us this past year, which has given us a lot of exposure and enabled us to interview some really amazing guests. See, and uh, since we made that announcement, we've gotten a bunch of donations, so thanks to everyone who did that. Uh, we've actually gotten enough to match what io9 would have paid us for the next couple episodes, so I think what we're going to do is just produce a few more episodes and post them over at geeksguideshow.com and see how many listeners follow us over there, and we'll decide based on that what we're going to do. Uh, if you want to make a donation, just go to geeksguyshow.com and click on the PayPal button in the upper right-hand corner of the page. We're also looking for a new host site, so for details on that, go to geeksguyshow.com and click on Advertising. And our plan actually is that by the time you're listening to this, we will have already produced our next episode, episode 52, and released it over on geeksguyshow.com. So as soon as you finish listening to this, head on over to geeksguyshow.com and check out episode 52. Okay, so now let's get on with the show. Um, our guest today is Brian Selznick. He's the author and illustrator of numerous picture books, including The Invention of Hugo Cabret. The book was recently adapted into the movie Hugo, directed by Martin Scorsese. Selznick's latest picture book, which is out now, is called Wonderstruck. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Brian Selznick. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. Happy to be here. Okay, so first of all, for people who haven't read The Invention of Hugo Cabret, what's it about? Uh, it's about a boy who's living secretly in the walls of a train station in Paris in 1931, and he uh, ends up meeting George Méliès, the filmmaker who made the first science fiction movie, uh, A Trip to the Moon. Uh, so illustrations play a major role in the book. Uh, could you sort of describe for our listeners what the book looks like? I, when I was illustrating the book, I was thinking about how I could make a book that simulates or echoes what a movie does, so there's these long narrative picture sequences in my book. So you, you're reading a little bit, the text stops, you turn the page, and there's a full double-page spread illustration of, of something. And then often for the next, like, 20 pages, you follow the story visually through the pictures until the pictures stop and get it gets picked back up again with the text. Uh, so now the book is also available as an audio book. Uh, given how important the art is, how, how does that work on audio? Yeah, the, the the audiobook was a bit of an experiment that came about before the book was published. Uh, you know, when I was making this book, I had no idea that it was going to be successful and that people were going to like it. And so I was approached by Scholastic Audio about making a, an audio adaptation. 
And it was such a weird idea because the book is all about what is happening with the pictures. And I just thought, well, what if this is the only way people experience my story? What if no one reads the book, but they like find the audio? So I kind of felt like I should do it if I could. And I was thinking about the year that the book takes place, which is 1931. And the fact that that was a couple of years after sound was introduced to the movies. And there were a lot of early directors like René Clair in France. They were using it in very weird and uh, experimental ways. And so I thought, well, maybe I can do like a sound experiment with my plot where I take the picture sequences and replace them as much as I can with, with sound effects so that you have this similar thing from the book, but different. So the audio version, I had to rewrite parts of the story because in the book, for example, uh, the, the boy Hugo is handed this handkerchief and you turn the page and he opens it. And inside are the ashes of this notebook that he had been hoping to get back. And so I had to write new text for that section. And then in the book, it might say the doorbell rang or the bell rang. And I was able to take that text out of the audiobook and replace it with a sound effect. I mean, you mentioned the director, Georges Méliès, uh, and he had a pretty interesting life story. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, Méliès uh, was originally a magician. He uh, owned a magic theater that had been built by Jean-Robert Houdin, who was the magician that Houdini uh, later named himself after. And Houdin was also a clockmaker and made uh, a lot of his magic effects in his clock shop and built uh, these very, very beautiful and very complicated automatons. And Melies inherited these automatons when he bought the uh, the magic theater. And he was around when the Lumiere brothers invented the cinema. The Lumiere brothers actually thought that cinema was just a gimmick. And it would be like a cool thing that re could record things in real life, like people coming out of a factory or a train coming into a station. But that was all the potential they saw for it. And Melies built his own uh, movie camera using parts from some of the old automatons. And he realized that this new medium could tell stories, that it could be like filming, like recording dreams in, in the middle of the day. And so he was one of the first narrative uh, filmmakers, and he is most well-known for this movie, A Trip to the Moon, where the a rocket goes into the eye, the man in the moon. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are very aware and very familiar with this movie, and, and if not, that, then that image. And uh, at the end of his life, uh, the cinema sort of went past him. You know, the camera that he used almost never moved. It was mounted to the floor. So if anything, if he needed to do a close-up, he would put somebody on a on a roller and roll them up to the camera so it looked like a close-up. But in fact, it was the subject moving, not the camera. And then, of course, you know, directors came along and they were moving the camera all through the world and doing these incredible things. And World War I came and suddenly he fell completely out of fashion. He ended up burning his old sets and costumes and a lot of his old negatives and he married, uh, his second wife was one of the actresses from his movies, uh, Jean Darcy. And she was the owner of a toy booth in a train station in Paris. And Melies spent the last years of his life working in this freezing cold toy booth seven days a week, raising uh, their granddaughter, uh, Madeline, after her mother died and her father ran away. And uh, at the very end of his life, uh, he was rediscovered by this new group of artists called the Surrealists, 
And at the very end of his life, he was rescued and celebrated and given a big gala and got to be the first resident in a new home for uh, people in the film industry that was created by by France. And so it it has a, uh, a, a happy ending after a very long period of despair. And um, yeah, and a couple of years ago, I stumbled upon this book called Edison's Eve about the history of automatons and learned that Melies had this collection of, of automatons that had been owned by um, Jean-Robert Houdin. And that at the end of his life, when he lost all his money and was you know, going to work in the toy booth, the automatons were donated to a local museum who didn't take care of them, and they were all destroyed and thrown away. And when I read that, I imagined uh, this kid climbing through the garbage and finding one of those broken machines the automaton in my book is based very closely on an automaton at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia called the Mallarday Automaton. And I found it just through Google. I was just looking up automatons, and I needed to, to research them for my book. I didn't know how they really worked. And it turned out there was this, you know, broke this machine. Well, it was it was this beautiful automaton at the, at the, at, uh, the Franklin Institute. But over the years, because it's very old, it, it, it broke. And so it wasn't on display when I called uh, the Franklin Institute, but they invited me to come see it in the basement and the head was off and the gears weren't working. Hmm. But the curator was able to show me how it would work and what would engage when you uh, wound it up and what parts would touch other parts. You know, and then I met a guy who's this, you know, brilliant mechanical genius who I introduced to people at the Franklin Institute and he went and fixed the automaton. And so now <laughs> the automaton is it's back on display and it's the centerpiece of this beautiful exhibition. How did the film uh, come about, and, and how long did the process whole, whole take from the time when it was first optioned? Yeah, the, the time period before the book was published, you know, there was a there was a lot going on. I was finishing the book. We were, you know, talking about making that audio version. Uh, and one of the things that also happens is that, you know, publishers make these advanced reader's copies, which are sort of like, you know, paperback versions of, of books that are about to be published a few months later. And they send these to bookstores and reviewers and librarians so they can get ready for their, you know, orders and their reviews. And what I did not know at the time was that uh, there are people in Hollywood whose job is to get these advanced readers' copies and see if any of these books might make good movies. And so one of the books made their way to the office of Graham King, uh, who won the Oscar for Best Picture for The Departed. And... Um, I got a phone call saying that Martin Scorsese wanted to make a movie of the book, uh, again, before the book was actually published. And so, you know, as you can imagine, it was a completely shocking uh, and jaw-dropping phone call. And it, it was amazing. So that was, uh, I don't know, like 2006, I think. The book came out in 2007. And, you know, that's Hollywood, I you know, is crazy and things happen and then they don't happen and people are on a project and then they're off a project. And so things were kind of uh, touch and go with the movie version. Uh, John Logan uh, was hired to write uh, an adaptation of the script. And, and I, I got to read some early versions of that, but then for various reasons, Scorsese had to leave the project and a couple of years went by. And eventually I just thought that, you know, it just wasn't going to happen, but uh Scorsese came back and once he came back, everything was like a, it was like a steamroller. Everything happened, uh, super fast. And, uh, it felt relatively anyway. Like, I mean, I think in the end, Scorsese worked 
just on on Hugo for about two years from you know storyboarding and getting everything ready and having the script written and the sets designed and built and the costumes and hiring the actors and getting everything ready to go and then the actual filming began and um so you know he'd been on the project since uh, 2006 2007 uh but then um it all was made in the last two years yeah, and you actually wrote a book called The Hugo Movie Companion about the whole process of making the movie. I mean, what what made you decide to want to write that book and how much uh, of the stuff were you around for and involved in? Yeah, I was on the set for about two weeks uh, towards the end of the shoot. And uh, I was invited originally just to come for one day because they're, you know, <laughs> they were a little busy and <laughs> working in 3D was very difficult. Uh, but once I got to the set, uh, and met everybody, I, I, they kept inviting me to come back the next day and the next day and the next day. So I ended up being there for about two weeks. And I became really obsessed with the um, the extras because there, on any given day, there were three to 500 extras walking through this train station who all looked like they had stepped out of a Brissai photograph. I asked if I could come see them getting into costume and makeup one morning. And so, you know, like it's seven o'clock, the next morning, I was in the in the extras tent watching this you know factory of extras get turned into these you know beautiful visions from 1931. And uh, David Davenport eventually turned to me and said, "Do you want to be an extra? Do you want to be in the movie?" Hmm. <laughs> I was like, um, "Yeah, sure." And um, I was going to be an extra standing in the corner with a champagne glass, trembling, trying not to look at the camera as it was going to go by me. And I was so nervous. And all of the actors from the movie are in this scene. Like, it's, it's got, like, I don't know, like 15 speaking parts in this scene. And um, it was, you know, all had to be done in one take. And the assistant director came up to me with a script and said, here's your line, memorize it. We start rehearsing in a couple of minutes. And I was like, What? And so it turned out I had I was given a line, and and I and suddenly I'm on the set standing next to Sir Ben Kingsley, uh, uh, saying my line to him, and it was it was amazing, like it was just amazing. And so I got back, I was finishing up I, my next book, Wonderstruck, and I thought, you know, I, I've had these incredible experiences, and I want to write about what it was like, and so I had this idea to make the, 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 the movie companion and I arranged to interview 40 people from Scorsese to the dog trainer, including all the actors uh, from Sir Ben to Asa Butterfield uh, to Sasha Baron Cohen. And I asked everybody, you know, uh, what their job was on the movie to please define it for kids to talk about you know what they did to talk about their childhoods, uh, to talk about, you know, what movies they loved as a kid. And actually the only person who, uh, couldn't do it was Sasha Baron Cohen because he only gives interviews in character. <laughs> so in the book, the the section about uh, Sasha is actually about Gustav Daste, the station inspector. And <laughs> it's really funny and really weird. My boyfriend, David Serlin, is an academic at UC San Diego, and he wrote essays about the history of automatons and George Melies and what Paris was like in 1931. So you have some historical context. And David wrote about the history of film, and uh, Scorsese read it and said, oh, this is pretty good, but I want to write my own for you. So Scorsese wrote a 500-word essay on the birth of cinema for this book. And so it, it was just um, 
a, it was a very hard project to make, uh, especially because I was trying to finish up another book at the time. But it was really exciting to work on it. Uh, and so uh, you know, you mentioned your new novel, Wonderstruck. Could you tell us what that's about? Uh, it's two different stories. Uh, one is set in 1977 uh, about a boy who runs away uh, from Minnesota to New York in search of his father. And the other story is set in 1927, 50 years earlier, about a girl who runs away to New York uh, in search of this actress who she's obsessed with. And the stories are told in different manners. The, um, the story that's set in 1977 is told all with words. And then the story that's set in 1927 is told all with pictures. And then these two stories weave back and forth and join up at the end, making a single narrative. So if you flip through the book, which is 100 pages longer than Hugo, it looks the same. But the reading experience is very different because you have these two different narratives. And both of the kids in the book are deaf. And then both of the kids, 50 years apart, end up at the Museum of Natural History. And so a lot of the book is also an homage to the book from the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basilie Frankweiler by E.L. Konigsberg about two kids who run away to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And so, yeah, I, you know, I wanted to take what I did with Hugo and try to do something slightly different with it. So I you know, had the idea to separate the words from the pictures. And in trying to think about what kind of story would make sense visually for the picture story, I remembered a documentary I saw called Through Deaf Eyes about deaf history and deaf education. And there was a quote from an educator who talked about how deaf people are the people of the eye, which I think has something to do with the fact that sign language is a language that you look at to understand. And uh, when you can't hear, what you see becomes even more important. So I thought maybe it would be interesting to tell the story of a deaf person just with pictures. That way, the 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 way the story is told echoes how that character would experience their life. And when people, uh, a couple people read Hugo, uh, they told me that when they got to the pictures, it felt like everything became silent. So I thought that silence might be an interesting thing to play with in the book. And so, so that became Wonderstruck. Uh, so in the acknowledgments, you mentioned a number of real life experiences that influenced the story. Uh, could you tell us a bit about some of those? Yeah, when I when I was growing up, I used to come to New York City pretty rarely because my I grew up in New Jersey and my parents hated New York. But we would come in to see the Museum of Natural History, and one of my favorite parts of the museum has always been the dioramas. And there's this beautiful diorama in the museum of these two wolves running through the snow at night, and it's got this very mysterious blue moonlight. It's very yeah, it's very beautiful. And when I was working on Wonderstruck, I, I knew I wanted to have the Museum of Natural History as part of the plot, and I thought it would be interesting to try to weave in this wolf diorama somehow. And so I, I was reading the, the, the plaque on the wall that was describing this diorama, and it said it was from a place called Gunflint Lake, Minnesota, which I had never heard of. So I did a little research, and I, I ended up going to visit Gunflint Lake in the nearest town, Grand Marais, which turned out to be an artist's colony filled with puppeteers and painters and children's book illustrators and jewelers. And uh, Gunsplint Lake itself is right on the border with Canada. And it's this beautiful place. And no one there knew that it was represented in this diorama in the middle of New York City. And so I thought it would be interesting to write a story about a boy from Gunsplint Lake who finds himself in New York for the first time and stumbles upon this diorama and is shocked to discover that it is from the place that he's born, 
And on top of that, he's been having these very weird dreams of being chased by wolves through the snow at night. And the, the diorama is an exact representation of his dreams. So part of the book is a, a, a mystery that has to do with this boy's connection to the diorama. But it was actually going to Gunflint Lake and meeting the people there that, that really fleshed out the story. But it all happened, you know, because I, you know, wanted to incorporate the, uh, the diorama into the plot. And, um, you know, and then my boyfriend, uh, teaches with two of the leading deaf scholars in the country, Carol Padden and Tom Humphreys. And so they were very generous with their time and read the manuscript and helped me make sure that everything about deaf culture and deaf education was accurate. But then even more importantly, they helped me make sure that the way I describe the experience of being deaf felt accurate because as a hearing person, you know, I could, I could read books and I could use my imagination, but you know, there's a big difference between imagining what it's like being deaf and actually being deaf. And so, uh, Carol and Tom, you know, and my, my conversations with them, uh, were instrumental in helping me make the book. All right. Well, uh, we're on, unfortunately, all out of time. Um, maybe just to wrap things up, do you want to talk about what are you up to right now? Any new or upcoming projects you want to mention? Yeah, I, I'm now just starting to work on my next book and I'm not really talking too much about it other than the fact that I do think it's going to be another big illustrated book. You know, one of the challenges is always figuring out, like, what can I do with it that's different than the last book? But I have a few ideas. I think I have the, the characters and the setting and the time period. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to being able to sit down and uh, really work on it. But, you know, I, I've, I've got a, a, some, you know, some fun things to do with, with the movie coming up, going to the premieres and <laughs> So I'm excited about, you know, participating in all of that. But then once all of that uh, settles down, I'm I'm really looking forward to just getting back to my desk and uh, working on my next book. All right, great. Well, Brian Selznick, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. All right, thanks so much. It was really great to talk to you. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Brian Selznick for joining us on the show. And for our discussion today, we're going to be talking about upcoming movies that are being adapted from classic fantasy and science fiction books. And we have a special guest geek joining us today. Matt London is a graduate of NYU Film School and has worked for several years as a video editor. He attended the Clarion Writers Workshop, and his articles on film, television, and video games have appeared in Lightspeed, Realms of Fantasy, and on Tor.com. His short story, Moja, appeared in John's anthology, The Living Dead 2. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. All right, and so the first thing I think we're going to talk about is uh, the upcoming Ender's Game movie. Uh, and it's actually it's kind of a nice segue from Brian Selznick, because the actor who starred in the Hugo movie, Asa Butterfield, uh, is, uh, has been cast to play Ender Wigan. Um, this is going to inevitably involve some spoilers for Ender's Game. So if you have not read Ender's Game, <laughs> stop listening now, go read it, and, and come back. Hmm. But so, I mean, John, you went and saw Hugo, right? What did you think of yeah. uh, Asa Butterfield as, as Ender Wigan? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a hard call. I mean, I think uh, I think that he did pretty well in Hugo. Um, I mean, playing Ender is going to be a much different experience. Um, I'm a little happier. I, I mean, I'm kind of happy that he's on the younger the younger side. You know, they, they've said all along that to, to cast the Enders, the, the role of Ender, they're going to have to age up all the actors so that they're, you know, or the, all the characters so that they're not as, actually as young as they are in Ender's game because it would just be too hard to get a, a, a child actors who can really act well um, at that young of an age and to have the whole cast be that age. 
Well, you know, you mentioned how hard it is to get good kid actors. I, I was watching recently the commentary for uh, James Cameron's Aliens, and they were saying how hard it was to get the Newt character, mm-hmm. and that all the little kids that they auditioned all had experience doing TV commercials and had been trained to smile after every line. Huh. And so you can just imagine, like, Aliens rip my parents apart. Smile, <laughs> you know. You know, Ender's Game has been in development for, like, almost 30 years, I think. And mm. it's such a popular story and, you know, such a... Uh, there's so much action and cool ideas and stuff that it seems like a really natural thing to make a movie out of. But sort of the more you think about it, the more you start to realize how many real problems there are uh, in terms of just sort of practically getting it to the screen. A lot of the story takes place in Ender's head. Mm -hmm. And if you're not inside his head, you're just watching what he's doing. You're just seeing him sort of winning at laser tag a lot and then periodically beating another little kid to death. <laughs> um, yeah, I wonder if they're going to have to do some uh, voiceover or something to to help communicate some of what is going through Ender's head. I attended a, I guess it was like a panel at a convention uh, where Card was talking about. This was a few years ago, and he was talking about you know the, where Ender's Game was in development. And what Card said was, you know, if you guys are anxious to see, like, if you want to know what the Ender's Game movie is going to be, just read the comic because the comic is the movie. Mm, mm-hmm. So check it out. It's a good, I mean, I think it's a decent comic adaptation and it deals, I think quite well with, with how to, you know, visualize those internal struggles that he's going through. I mean, one thing I heard card say was that, you know, he wrote this parallel novel to Ender's game um, called Ender shadow, which is about Bean. it's like the same story as Ender's game, except told from the point of view of Bean. And he had sort of indicated that at one stage in the screenplay, they had taken a lot of material from Ender's Shadow and sort of merged it into Ender's Game so that you had more of sort of a uh, a buddy movie dynamic with Ender and Bean so that they could talk to each other and you could get their interior feelings. Because, uh. I mean, if you actually, you know, there's this book called The Ender Companion and there's this chapter in it going through the whole development history of the Ender's Game movie. And it's, you know, it's like, 30 pages long or something. It just goes on and on and on. But right. but one thing that Card has said is that, you know, for, for years he's wanted to make the movie and that uh, Hollywood filmmakers, they always want Ender to be a teenager. You know, they want him to be like 18 or something. Uh, they want there to be a love interest and a happy ending. And uh... Well, that, I mean, the happy ending is the most ridiculous thing. I mean, obviously... Uh... <laughs> Obviously, like the whole point of of what makes Ender's Game so powerful, or part of what makes Ender's Game so powerful, is is that they are so young, but also the ending that it has. I mean, it's like why bother adapting it if you're going to change all that? But you can see from yeah, you, know, you can see the temptation for a filmmaker to have an ending where Ender figures out that the game is real and he doesn't kill the he doesn't commit xenocide, right? Mm-hmm. That that's a really sort of neat ending for a movie. Mm-hmm. And the ending of the book is very sort of complicated and, mm-hmm. you know, hard to put on screen and stuff. Actually, you know, one thing I'm kind of curious about um, is, uh, and maybe Matt, you can speak to this having read the comic, uh, but I'm kind of curious uh, how much of a factor uh, the Valentine and uh, Peter sort of dialogues are going to have in, in the movie. Um, I mean, it is present in the comics. I mean, my own personal opinion is that, you know, if if you read the book today, I think that that the Peter Valentine sequences are probably the most sort of dated mm. um, of the novel. There's a great um, XKCD comic about this 
where they sort of, you know, they he sort of puts the two of them on screen. And, you know, their reasoning is, oh, let's post to these message boards and mm. talk about our political opinions. And people on those boards will see how insightful we are and then decide that we should run the country or the world because we know we know the answers because we're the smartest people. It's a little implausible given, like, how the Internet has developed in actuality as, a, as opposed to, like, how it was sort of being speculated about in Ender's Game. Well, I mean, certainly, certainly you know, when I was a kid, I, I read that, you know, that uh, subplot and was really taken with it and just couldn't wait until, you know, I could write my political opinions on the Internet <laughs> and, you know, develop a huge following and have political influence and stuff. And, and then, you know, the actual Internet comes along and, you know, you type your political opinions and people are just shout obscenities at you and, you know, and that's hmm. basically all that happens. Uh, that was kind of a letdown. But, I mean, I don't think that the the book is that far. I mean, is that far off in its predictions compared to, you know, what existed when it was predicting it? I mean, you know, we have seen the way that, you know, you can just build a big following online and wield a lot of influence. And, you know, it's it's not really too hard to imagine it being done anonymously or, you know, mm -hmm. having big influences on politics like, uh, you know, the uh, like the way Twitter has affected the, the Arab Spring and stuff like that. I suppose it's true that at some point in our lifetimes, there may be a U.S. president who was also a blogger, you know, or something mm -hmm. like that. Or a podcaster. <laughs> or a podcaster. <laughs> yeah, Dave, actually, uh, I mean, you know, your, your undergraduate degree is in, like, uh, political philosophy or something like that, right? I mean, um, did you... Were, were you inspired by Ender's Game to actually go into that, or? Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't, it, I'm sure that played a role, yeah, that and, I mean, other, I mean, I, I really liked a lot of science fiction um, that had political aspects mm -hmm. to it. I mean, it's stuff also like uh, Starship Troopers, although, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't endorse the politics, but, but just the idea of politics uh, mm -hmm. in a science fiction book you know, really appealed to me. And I really did. And, you know, like Asimov's foundation and stuff like that has, has sort of a political uh, aspect to it. And, and that did, I mean, definitely, I mean, I, you know, I majored in, in political science explicitly because I wanted, because I found that stuff interesting in science fiction and I wanted to know about it to write better science fiction mm. and, you know, and to write science fiction built around those sorts of ideas. Cool. Well, um, yeah, but I mean, you know, getting back to the, the casting, um, you know, uh, I, I was actually just looking it up, and I, I, I couldn't find... I mean, I see somebody who's listed as uh, for Peter. I don't actually see um, whoever they have uh, cast for Valentine, but... Um, uh, Abigail Breslin is playing Valentine. Okay. I don't actually know. Uh, what's she been in? She was, um, I believe, the girl in uh, Little Miss Sunshine. Oh, hmm. right. Yeah, yeah, right. No, I think I did hear that. Uh, yeah, and I mean, actually, uh, so that that seems promising. And uh, uh, I mean, most of the other supporting cast that I've seen seems pretty great. Like, I mean, Ben Kingsley as Mazer Rackham. I mean, that's pretty exciting. Um, and uh, Harrison Ford as Graf. Like, that's right. great. I am excited about that casting, though. I mean, I, you know, I would never have, I would never have thought of that, I don't think. But it it, it is perfect. I mean, that yeah. Colonel Graf is sort of, you know, you, I can totally see him as sort of like Han Solo. 30 mm -hmm. years later with this, like, shitty yeah, job yeah. he doesn't want to do, you know. This is what I get for helping the rebellion <laughs> in general now. Well, isn't in the book, I believe, Graf is described as being, like, immensely fat, <laughs> right? I don't remember. I don't, I don't remember exactly the language, but I think he's described as being, like, this kind of, like, gruff, washed-up, desk-flying sort of they're they're he's constantly about to be fired 
uh, <laughs> which, which seems, which, yeah, I mean, I just, I love, I just, I love Harrison Ford in this role because of all those things you're saying. Um, and also because we haven't really seen him in a full on space opera kind of movie in a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And it feels so right to have him back in the shoes of, yeah, Han Solo, Deckard. And I think it's a uh, it's a good sign for the movie that he's a part of it. And then and then and then Haley Stein, uh, Steinfeld as uh, Petra. I mean, I, I don't know that she's right, sort of ethnically, to be Petra. But I mean, she's a great actress. I mean, she. I mean, I if anybody saw True Grit, I mean, the remake of True Grit, you know, the Coen Brothers version. I mean, oh my God, she was amazing in that. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like carried the movie. Um, you know, Gavin Hood is a director who I'm kind of torn on. Um, you know, he's an Oscar winner. He directed Satsi, which was a foreign uh, Oscar winner uh, a few years ago, um, which I haven't seen, but I, but most people say is a, a really good movie. He also directed the X-Men Origins Wolverine, <laughs> right? Um, which makes me really nervous because, mm-hmm. um, you know, there are a number of directors like this who do really um, thought-provoking, beautiful, low-budget films Mm -hmm. and then because they get popular based on those films they get a ton of money thrown at them to make some huge hollywood blockbuster right and it's a disaster Mm -hmm. for whatever reason Hmm. Um, let me see if i can think of one how about the guy who directed alien resurrection uh is his name um there's there's so many more that we can name um but i think that ender's game unlike something like wolverine is a movie where the story and the characters really do come first and the special effects and the, you know, sort of the backdrop um, are very much secondary. So I'm hoping that he'll be able to, you know, sort of embrace uh, the actor work and really make it a movie about the, those performances. And, you know, we may not know what Butterfield can do yet, but I think that, as soon as you see that one production still of him in the suit with his eyes looking intense, it'll sell everybody. Mm-hmm. I can already see what the trailer or the first teaser is going to be. It's going to be like, it's going to be a close up of Ender and he's going to be looking into the camera and he's going to say like the enemy's gate is down <laughs> and then it's going to like, and then it's going to pan out to showing the battle room and it's like, oh yeah, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> Can't wait for that. I mean, one one thing that's been really controversial about Ender's Game is just the the violence and like kids doing the violence. I mean, do you, what do you guys think about how that's going to make a transition to film? I mean, the book starts out with Ender kicking and kicking a kid in the <laughs> balls until he dies. You know, I mean, later on, also, I mean, there's this scene where Ender's in the shower, and then all these boys come and corner him, and then another boy like strips down naked because he doesn't want to have an unfair advantage, and they fight, and Ender ends up killing him too. Like how is that? How how can you possibly put that in a Hollywood, big budget Hollywood movie? And I think one of the hard things too is that you know obviously you have a movie that looks like it's centered around kids, or I mean, well obviously it is centered around kids, but it looks like it's going to be a kids movie based based on the fact that it is centered around kids. Uh, there's going to be a lot of pressure for them to make that you know at the most PG, but like I mean, there's no way they can make this not anything less than PG thirteen. I don't think. Um, I mean, really, it should be rated at R, given how much violence is, is should be in it based on the book. But I, I think I think the I think the best we're going to get is a PG thirteen movie. Although um, 
that's probably okay because I think there's a lot you can do in PG-13. It's like, you know, because there's no, because there's no sex. And that's what they, that's the only thing that really pushes something to R. Like violence, oh man, you can have all kinds of violence in PG-13. You know, kids, they can see violence, but don't show them any sex. <laughs> yeah, as far as the, the, the nudity goes, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they'll, you know, they'll walk around that. I mean, they'll, they'll probably, you know, be in underwear or something, or, you know, they'll do, they'll figure out something to make that scene sort of still happen, but not, you know, quite the way it happens in the book, you know? I mean, one of the big draws of Ender's Game, obviously, is actually seeing the the battle room, the zero gravity laser tag kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It, it's really shocking to me how awesome the idea of zero gravity combat is and mm-hmm. how little of it we've ever... The only example I can really think in a movie is uh, there's one scene in uh, Star Trek Six where they shut off the gravity and uh, and some Klingons get shot and their pink blood is floating around. That, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of cool, but... Also, you know. the James Bond film Moonraker. There's a zero G like storming of a space station, and there's people getting shot all over the place. I, I haven't seen. Is that good? I haven't seen it. Moonraker. I mean, is, it well, I mean, is the gra- is zero gravity <laughs> stuff well? It has, you know, well it done. has a man who bites through a uh, the elevator cable with his teeth. What do you think? Is it good? <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, there's in Ender's Game, there's this whole subplot involving Ender playing this fantasy game on his computer. I could see that being cut, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that in the comic book, Matt? It is in the comic book, briefly. Um, but I think that, because it's something that Card really likes. If I'm not mistaken, he may have started with that game. that Like the giant game, that's what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I might be making this up. But I, I vaguely remember um, something where Card said that it, like he had this idea for the game or that maybe it was a separate idea that he incorporated later, which, of course, would mean that, yeah, I, I, I think it'd be really easy to cut the game um, just from a Hollywood kind of like screenwriting standpoint because mm-hmm. um, you always want it to be shorter, shorter, shorter. Okay, so now the, the Ender's Game novel was, was written explicitly to set up the sequel, Speaker for the Dead. Are there any plans to make Speaker for the Dead? I haven't, I haven't heard anything about that. Is it a Hollywood movie? <laughs> <laughs> yes, there will be a sequel. Actually, uh, I'm not sure that they'll actually go right to Speaker for the Dead. I think they'll actually, they would, if they're going to do any sequels, they would make uh, the Shadow Book. Uh, they would, they would adapt the Shadow Books into movies because those explicitly follow Ender's Game um, in, in the in the in the Enderverse timeline. Uh, as yeah. far as I recall. No, right. So, if, if people don't know, the Shadow books are the, the sequels to Ender's Shadow that follow what happens to Bean after the events of Ender's Game, uh, whereas Ender uh, goes off into space in, uh, in Speaker for the Dead. Yeah, because well, the reason I'm saying this, actually, is, you know, if, if you don't know, uh, Speaker for the Dead takes place, what, like a thousand years after or something because yeah. of time dilation and yeah. everything. So um, so it's like, basically, it's like nothing to do with Ender's Game. I mean, like, so it's like... Uh, like Card needed to write Ender's Game in order to, you know, figure all figure out everything for Ender um, in Ender in uh, Speaker for the Dead. But I mean, it's like they're such totally different books. One thing that the producers could do in terms of making a sequel is, you know, you want something that's a direct sequel, and you want to keep your main character. Oh right, yeah. There's so also Ender in Exile, right? You're in Exile, right? Yeah, I haven't actually read that one. I know it's been uh, it was it was received somewhat controversially amongst the Ender fans. 
Um, was a, I think lukewarm is the is the way to describe its reception. Right, right. Because it it sort of jammed into the middle. You know, it's mm-hmm. sort of like it, it. the entire book takes place between, like, the third to last and second to last chapters of Ender's Game. Oh, okay. And there was a lot of retconning mm-hmm. that had to go on um, to make it work. But, I mean, Card actually rewrote Ender's Game a couple of times. I mean, there have been... Yeah, because well, it was first a novella uh, published in Analog. And then he expanded it into the novel. Uh, but then, like, if you go by the book, right? If you go by the book today, it actually says, you know, author's preferred edition. So, yeah, I mean, he clearly, uh, there's clearly a couple of versions uh, floating out there. I actually do have a copy of, like, the original, uh, the original novel length version um, as it was originally published. Um, I haven't actually tried to read that one because, I mean, I've read the, the, the modern version, you know, the, the, the author's preferred edition. I've read that multiple times, but um, I don't know what the actual differences are. I'd actually be curious to see if someone could itemize what the differences are between the two versions. All right. So then another, um, you know, movie coming out is Disney's John Carter, uh, based on the work of Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, particularly the first uh, book in his Mars series, The Princess of Mars. You know, the next anthology I have coming out is called Under the Moons of Mars, um, and it's uh, based on the on the same work here. It's uh, based on the, the Barsoom novels by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Um, and so these are all new adventures, um, you know, sort of about John Carter and, and, and the other characters in, in those stories. And uh, so, I mean, I'm really excited about the movie. I mean, you know, I, I hope it does very well. I mean, and not only because uh, that'll help my book do well, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, like uh, for, for this, this version, Andrew Stanton, you know, he directed uh, Wally. Um, and, uh, you know, so, I mean, I'm really excited about that. I mean, it's his first live action movie. Um, although obviously since, uh, uh, I mean, if you know anything about these books, you know, there's going to be tons and tons of special effects. So, I mean, this is like um, so, sort of akin to Avatar in terms of like, Basically, it's half animated, half live action, you know, because there's so much there's so much digital effects in the movie. You know, it's funny that you bring up Avatar because Avatar is basically just a ripoff of Princess of Mars. Right. This soldier gets taken to a faraway world where he's never been. And there's these two warring factions and one is freaky looking and tribal. And the other one is like technologically advanced and human ish right and then they fight there's this love story with a hot alien chick and like it's the same movie so you know it's funny because i think originally that there might have been one point where they were both going to come out at the same time Mm. and there was much more of a controversy about it then Mm -hmm. but now that it's been years um people have kind of forgotten about avatar i think yeah, I mean, John Favreau was going to direct it uh, for a while there, and it looked like it was really going to happen. I think that was around the time Avatar came out that it was looking like right. that was going to that was going to be the one. But right, so directors, potential directors for the John Carter movie even have included John McTiernan, Robert Rodriguez, Carrie Conran, who uh, directed Sky Captain oh. in the World of Tomorrow. Right, right. So he was hired. Yeah, I remember that. And then left the production for unknown reasons. My reason, I think, is that the producers watched Sky Captain in the World. <laughs> and then John Favreau, who left, and now Andrew Stanton. Projects like this that pass direct, like multiple writers, multiple productions, movies can sometimes survive that and end up with a decent product. Mm-hmm. But when you go through that many directors, uh, Danger Will Robinson. Okay, so yeah, so I mean, I actually have a story in, in John's anthology, so I also have a vested interest in hoping that this movie does well. 
and, uh, you know, makes John Carter really popular. But I have to say, I kind of have a bad feeling about it, <laughs> uh, watching the, the trailer. I, I, I feel uneasy. Does anybody else have that reaction well, to the trailer? Well, I mean, based on the trailer, I don't know if it's going to be good, but I do think it's going to be popular. So, I mean, that part, at least I'm, I'm not worried about at this point. I think it's definitely going to be popular. I'm not sure if it's going to be good. I hope it's going to be good. There was a lot of stuff I didn't recognize from the book uh, mm -hmm. in the trailer, like this, this some sort of like new super weapon or something. Right. Well, so that raises another question is, you know, we've discussed, is it going to be popular? Is it going to be good? But is it going to be a princess of Mars? You know, it, oh, it seems right. like there's this urge in Hollywood to sort of make whatever the source material is Hollywood. I think that it could go one of two ways. You know, if there are things that you see in the trailers that are totally unrecognizable to you, part of that may be that there are certain things in those early books that are really dated, uh, mm -hmm. just in the way that, you know, society's changed since they came out in, what, the 20s, the teens? Well, because yeah. this is the 100th anniversary. It's, oh, right. it's 1912. Yeah. So 1912. Yeah, yeah, right, 1912, right. The stuff that I saw that was unfamiliar was a lot of the Deja Thoris stuff, and it, I, I expect her to take on a much more active and clothed role <laughs> in, the, in the movie. Uh, some of that stuff about them like falling onto uh, flying machines was reminding me of, uh, and not in a good way, of uh, Star Wars Episode Two. I oh. mean, obviously nothing... Related to Star Wars Episode Two reminds you of anything in a good way. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, it can't possibly two be lightsabers bad. at once. <laughs> it can't possibly be as bad as uh, Episode Two. But as far as as far as will it be Princess of Mars? I think it will feel very much like it, even if there are things that change. I mean, just because like I know Shaven is such a fanboy, and and based on interviews I've seen with Stanton, he seems like a real fanboy too. So I mean, I, I don't think that they would change it too much that it would be unrecognizable. At least that's what I'm hoping. Um, I am kind of puzzled that they changed the name of it from John Carter to John. I mean, from John Carter of Mars to just John Carter. It's like what were they? Are they afraid that people are going to think it's science fiction or something? Like this this story about a guy who goes to Mars and 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 leaps around like Superman and uh, and fights alien creatures. I mean, like, hmm, don't want to get any of that sci-fi cooties on it or anything. But um, Andrew Stanton said in an interview that that's exactly why they took of Mars out of the title was to open it up to a wider audience. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, come on. But, I mean, anybody who sees this trailer, they're going to see it's on Mars. What the hell? But I, I can sort of, I could maybe see the reasoning sort of being that, you know, people know what Mars is like and it's not like this. And so uh, people who see the trailers might go see an Avatar type movie, but might be slightly turned oh. off by the Mars, mm -hmm. you know, being totally yeah, yeah. inaccurate sort of kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I can see that. I can see that. That that's that that makes me feel better about the decision actually. Um, you know, because like obviously like when um, you know, in the in the story it's going to be called Barsoom, you know, in, in the movie it's going to be called Barsoom and uh I mean, I mean I'm sure at some point John Carter must say Mars or something, but I mean um uh yeah, I mean for all intents and purposes it might as well not be Mars. Yeah, I really hope that John Carter is a good movie. We haven't had a real swashbuckling sci-fi movie in a long time it would also make me and my publisher very happy <laughs> yeah i'm sure i'm sure um again it's called under the moons of mars and it's available in february so who are uh, who it. are some of the other authors in that book john all right so it's got stories by like joe lansdale peter s beagle uh tobias buckel 
uh, Robin Wasserman, Austin Grossman, Genevieve Valentine, um, S.M. Sterling, Kat Valente, Jonathan Mayberry, uh, folks like that. And um, Tamara Pierce wrote the forward. And uh, there's also a, a pretty cool um, sort of glossary in the back uh, by Richard Lupoff, who's like a Barsoom scholar or, or Burroughs scholar more generally. But um, it, it's just sort of uh, introducing you to all the various terms and terminology in, in, in the story and, and, you know, give you in some background on characters. So, like, if you if you read the books when you were younger and you haven't read them since, uh, haven't thought about them since, uh, you know, sort of fresh in your memory. And also the book's actually fully illustrated. It's got um, every story has an illustration. Um, so like there's there's one by Charles Vess, uh, by Gregory Manchess, um, Mike Cavallaro, John Picasso. Um, so, yeah, if you're interested in the anthology at all, or if you like John Carter of Mars and Barsoom, you know, you'll want to check it out. All right. So The Hobbit uh, trailer just came out. What do you guys think? It looks like The Hobbit. <laughs> it looks like The Hobbit with really badass dwarves. <laughs> <laughs> Because my, you know, my introduction to The Hobbit was the uh, animated film. That was my vision of Middle Earth, basically until the uh, the new movies came out. the The Lord of the Rings trilogy came out. Yeah, I mean, I I thought the trailer looked good. I mean, it uh, you know, it's about what I expected. I mean, you know, it's Peter Jackson. He's awesome. The 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 you know, the Lord of the Rings movies were awesome and. You know, I expect this will be awesome. But uh, actually, like Matt, I, I think my first exposure was also the the, the animated film. Um, although I did read the book and love the book uh, as a kid as well. But yeah, I mean, well, I think. Uh, hey, wait, time out. I also read the book. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to get that implication. I've read all the books. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, no, no. I didn't mean to imply that. To, no, that's that, okay. It's okay. Um, but uh, yeah, no. I mean, I, uh, I. I think it. I think it looks good. It looks promising. Uh, I'm a little dubious about like, you know, whatever it is that they're going to add, you know, cause they, cause they're making it into two movies, um, which is going to not only be the contents of the Hobbit, but also sort of bridge the gap between uh, the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, I think. Right. Yeah. That's, that's right. my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a little dubious, like what they're going to do to add all that stuff or what they're going to add, you know, but I mean, Hey, I trust Peter Jackson. I mean, um, you know, based on Lord of the Rings, I mean, you got to give the man some rope. So. There was there was this comment I saw that was really funny where some somebody posted on YouTube to the trailer and they said this looks like the biggest Lord of the Rings ripoff I've ever seen like <laughs> it even looks like they have the same guy playing the wizard is this what Hollywood has come to and it was like completely serious you know <laughs> I can't you know I saw that I can't believe that that's actually serious like that, <laughs> it just has to be a joke it says from the you know from the producer <laughs> director writer stars and country of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> comes the hobbit like yeah but this is a youtube comment we're talking about no i know (laughs) it's a genre in itself yeah although i I will say one thing about the trailer like you know i mean i knew this just based on the casting but martin freeman perfect like you know he's very good i mean anybody you know just like that's the perfect casting he even looks a little bit not like himself Mm -hmm. which i think is really nice Mm -hmm. they've sort of pudged him up and (laughs) yeah like elijah wood was this sort of like baby-faced angel in those mm-hmm. movies. But Martin Freeman looks way more like a hobbit. I yeah, think. I agree. I agree. See, mm-hmm. so, so, Matt, apparently they're filming this movie at 48 frames per second or something, like double the usual. Can you explain what that what that's going to look like? Do you want me to give you, like, a sort of 101 on how, film, how like, film projection works? Because it's really boring. No, um, don't say anything boring. Okay. Basically, um... 
camera like, like from, from from my point of view is it gonna am i gonna look at it and be like this is amazing or is it just gonna be you will not have any idea that there's something different <laughs> you you really won't be able to tell so what's the point um, well, what the point is that it will create more of a fluidity between the individual frames. The the motions and actions of the characters will feel somewhat liquidy almost or smoother. They'll feel smoother. I also I also really enjoyed the the was it Rankin Bass, the um animated movie. Like how do you guys what do you guys imagine is gonna be different about the live action version uh, compared to that? Uh, I would guess there's probably going to be less singing, um, although there is some singing in the trailer. Uh, I mean, my bigger question is, like, where is this first movie going to end? Um, and where is the second one going to pick up? You can sort of glean from the trailer what we know we will see, which at least gets them escaping from the uh, Goblin Mountain. But, you know, we also don't know how much of the uh, sort of Gandalf plot we're going to get. We know that uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is playing both Smaug and uh, the Necromancer, uh, which is referred to in the uh, in the in the book as this sort of evil wizard that Gandalf goes off and fights. I so, have to say, I have to say, they should have got James Earl Jones to do it to do the voice of uh, Smog. Smog, you know. When uh, Guillermo del Toro was going to direct the movie and he was going to have, I think, Ron Perlman oh. do it, I thought that was a great casting choice. That's a good but actually, call. Have, have you guys seen the BBC series Sherlock? Yeah. Because, I, I mean, you know, I didn't get it when I first started watching it, but by the end of that first episode, I was totally convinced that this guy was perfect for Smaug. His face is like a lizard's face. <laughs> and he has this sort of there's so much more gravitas in his voice than you would expect someone who looks like that to have. So if they'd like just put some sensors on that dude's face, I mean, his eyeballs will be blinking sideways. It'll be great. I mean, it's, it's awesome. He certainly got a good uh, uh, Lord of the Rings type of name. I mean, Cumberbatch. That sounds like he's a hobbit. <laughs> yeah, he it shouldn't... sounds like it sounds like a made up name. It does. <laughs> well, I mean, speaking of Guillermo del Toro, I mean, um, I was kind of curious. I, I was not sure how that was going to go because. Del Toro sort of hit or miss for me, and I could I could have seen it being amazing or sort of not being The Hobbit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but I did kind of I, I when I saw this this trailer, I thought I thought it looked I thought it looked really good, but I, I sort of felt at the same time it like it looks exactly like Fellowship of the Ring, you know, which I've mm-hmm. already seen thirty times. You know, like same exact Gandalf, same exact uh, Rivendell, same exact Gollum, etc. And uh, it did kind of make me wonder if. You know, I've watched the Lord of the Rings movies so many times that it's that this is going to have a diminished effect, mm. being so similar in style uh, to those. I actually like that there's that unity of design in the films. I think that'll make it feel more like a prequel, sequel, whatever. If you look at the sort of history of animated Lord of the Rings and sort of Tolkien movies... There's this weird kind of schizophrenia to them. If you try to watch those three films back to back, The Hobbit, Bakshi's Lord of the Rings, and then The Return of the King, it feels almost gross in the way that it shifts back and forth in style and, and tone. I think that because of this, this through line that we have with Peter Jackson um, and his sort of design uh, our army, I think it's going to feel like going home again 
right? I mean, think back to when, and th- this is a dangerous comparison to make, but think back to when uh, those Star Wars prequels were first coming out before we knew that they were awful, right? Hmm. When, when it was like, I've waited so long to see more. I've dreamt so much about more. And now here it is. You know, there's, there's a magic to that, that, uh, so few franchises can actually capture well. And I think that based on this trailer, I, I think that The Hobbit could totally do that. All right. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So, Matt, thanks for joining us. Uh, it was great to be here, guys. Thanks a lot for having me. And thanks to all our listeners here at io9. It was really exciting being here this past year. We released 30 new episodes, our posts drew a quarter million page views, and we got to interview some really big-name guests, such as George R. R. Martin, Richard Dawkins, Simon Pegg, Robert Kirkman, Mary Roach, and Neil deGrasse Tyson. So we hope you all enjoyed having us as much as we enjoyed being here. And we hope now you'll follow us over to our new home at geeksguideshow.com, where you can listen to episode 52 right now. Features an interview with award-winning science fiction author Ian McDonald, as well as part two of our discussion about upcoming movie adaptations. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you over there. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of io9. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.